Welcome back to the show. My guest is a return guest. Harun Mir is founder and CEO of Thinkst, T-H-I-N-K-S-T, makers of Thinkst Canary. Harun is uh, an influencer. He doesn't want to believe it, but he's one of the big influencers in cybersecurity and a pal of mine who I've always enjoyed having a conversation with because I feel like we can have transparent, honest, blunt conversations about things happening in the industry without fear or favor. Harun, welcome back to the show. How is life? That's cool to be back. Um, life's good. It's uh, almost feels like getting back to normal in terms of COVID. And now we have to worry about global thermonuclear war. But other than that, uh, it's good. You mentioned COVID, so let's start there. Um, one of the things I'm hearing from uh, a lot of the drumbeat of security marketers is how much COVID and work from home and remote work has changed the dynamics around defense, has modified the way security programs think about the way they defend their organizations. And, and a lot of it is marketing babble, but I'm hearing a lot of noise from security vendors saying we're doing a lot better now because security, has, there's been a shift in things. Have you noticed that? Can you talk a little bit about what you're hearing and seeing with your customer base and your world around post-COVID and the way security programs look now versus how it looked when there was this remote work was a different thing? That's a super good question. Look, for us personally, um, things like carried on on their normal trajectory through COVID. Like we thought that COVID would like we didn't know how it would affect things and mostly it didn't like things seem to work pretty normally i think it's hard to tell with my cynical hat on uh, to take the word of most vendors because most vendors kind of know that you have to fake it till you make it or succeed breeds success and and so like when COVID happened everyone said it was the best thing ever because now people will be attacked at home and so there was new stuff to sell. And post-COVID, everyone seems to say, well, we're back to the office. We need to sell more security. So, yeah, I haven't seen a dramatic difference. I, I can't imagine that the threat landscape changed dramatically because of COVID. Like, like I think there was the immediate work-from-home concerns that didn't really play out the way most people thought it would. Like, it wasn't cyber apocalypse like the the early headline said so yeah i'd be surprised if there's a meaningful difference uh because of it but at the same time the corporate network looks different i mean we have to invest heavy heavier on vpn technologies that bring their own kind of risks i mean the the the, the way the visibility in the layout of the network looks different though it, it, so i think it does a little bit but so this, like, I don't have a very educated opinion here, but, but my honest first thought is just that most big orgs don't move as dramatically. So, so there's an increase in work from home, but people didn't lose their data centers. Like, like if you had data centers, you still have data centers and, right. and people VPNed uh, folks from home into the office. But, but it wasn't the home apocalypse that everyone was talking about. Kind of like it wasn't a bring your own device apocalypse like people spoke about. And, and for sure, there's an increased risk. And for sure, so I'll tell you for us personally, we resisted home canaries for a very long time. And, and one of the reasons we resisted it is lots of people immediately want it. 
but we don't believe most home networks were attacked that way. So, so the way Canary works is you land on a corporate and you start looking around and then you see a Canary. And with most home attacks that we've seen, people land on the computer, take what they can and leave. That's and so right. I could put a Canary next to you, but attackers breaking into your home aren't looking around. They, they break onto your machine, they take what they can and they leave. And, and so I was curious if that would change dramatically during COVID. And we saw lots more people asking for home canaries. So if people would pay for it at the office, they'd now pay for the execs to have it at home. Right. But I haven't seen many stories of uh, attackers changing their, their attack profile to now treat homes as an extension of the office. And, and I'm sure it will happen. But, but I just haven't seen it. Like, like I didn't see a lot of that. And I think the forward-leaning companies that were inclined to move to a beyond trust model, that were looking for that, accelerated that. But, but again, I think we're not under, oh, the world looks completely different today than it did back then. I, I think something slightly accelerated, like, like people who are dragging their feet with SaaS apps, that's gone. Like you went home right, and you started but, using more SaaS apps. But we need to, we need to like qualify this conversation between the haves and the have nots, sure. right? There's like, like you mentioned, people who have gone to beyond carbon zero trust. It's like, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a segment of maturity that, that is, is that we always, we, we, we define our industry by the mature organizations when the majority of organizations right. are not there yet. And, and COVID actually sparked a lot of what we call digital transformation, speed right. up deployments of Slack and teams. And, and that in itself introduces attack surface and even, and, 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 and I mentioned VPN software because VPN software right. is now becoming a massive, massive entry point for all kinds of ransomware things. And that has right. now kind of made it, things look a little different. So let's qualify the conversation around haves and have nots as well. Sure. Yeah, Does that no, make sense? Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. And, and part of the problem is that like everyone always gets bunged together with everything. Like when you talk about moving to the cloud, there's some people who are still miles from it. Um, yeah, but, but I think my answer still holds for the most part is I think for sure COVID started people using more of the cloud and more SaaS apps than they were previously comfortable with. Mm -hmm. I think there's certainly different attack surface. Like I think people rush to say more, but I'm not sure it's more. I think it's different. And I think the world looks slightly different for attackers, slightly different for defenders. Um, but I don't see it as, uh, yeah, not yet complete game changes. I, I think vendors like the dramatic uh, take mostly because it plays to whatever it is that they're selling. Right. And, and, and so now that... they have new selling points. Yeah. yeah, that's why I described a lot of it as marketing bubble. It's just trying to say, hey, we are seeing a lot more threats here, or we are seeing a lot an increase in email-borne threats, and we're seeing an increase in the kind of hybrid threats that go across here. And some of it is true, but as a journalist, I know how to kind of like, you know, filter apart yeah, what is exactly real and not. And it's people like you who help me understand what's really happening on the ground, because you're dealing with actual practitioners who are looking for, for these breach detection things. Let's let's switch, right. switch gears a little bit as, uh, uh, and just to stay on the whole COVID thing because you're a device maker, right? You ship a physical device as part we of your do. business, right? Does, yep. Has the supply chain 
chaos and implications really affected you in, in, in a meaningful way? And can you talk a little bit about how much post-pandemic has evolved the way you run the business? Um, so, yeah, it's a good question. So we have data points that might actually add confusion and not clarity. So, so we sell hardware canaries, like that was our version one. And since then, we also sell virtual canaries and cloud canaries. And the right. reason why like I say- The spot uh, is what? Have you shifted towards the virtual ones now as like the bulk uh, of the model? So that's the interesting thing is we always expected virtual and cloud to pick up just because right. people have, and it has, and it's hard to tell right now if that's because of the pandemic or if that was just inevitable. Um, but certainly natural, right? over the last while, over COVID, we've uh, started to ship ship more virtual birds and cloud birds than hardware birds. Um, it, like I say, that was always the obvious way for the business to grow, in part because right. the easiest way to start with Canary is get some of these hardware things, see if it works, before you start putting it into your cloud, putting it into your ESXi and all of that. So, so it's hard to tell how much of that is COVID-related. But certainly, uh, what I can say is early on when people shut down, people came back saying, hey, we left the hardware at the office. We're not going to configure those things now. Can you right. give us virtual birds or can you give us cloud birds and we can do that stuff? So, so from we certainly saw more of that. Um, but the hardware business is still uh, solid. And, and post-pandemic, there's certainly been a visible uptick with people going, hey, we need hardware shipped. And with the current uh, uncertainty with with uh, Russia, Ukraine, you've seen a pickup of people in troubled sectors going, hey, can you ship us boxes? Uh, we need to send it right. out to places. So, so you are seeing uh, that stuff. Yeah, I, I wouldn't uh, make that much of it just because like it's... Uh, yeah, it's seasonal type stuff almost, but but that's what we're seeing so far. Right. One of the, the fun parts of having a conversation with you is to talk a little bit about business and bootstrapping and VC versus <laughs> bootstrapping the business. And I love to get into it with you if you don't mind. Last, I think it was last year, March 2021, you wrote a post saying we bootstrapped to 11 million in ARR. The post came at a time when another company had 10 million in ARR and had announced that they had reached unicorn status on the VC side. So, and, and, and it's a two-part question here. One, do you, right. are, do you ever have any sort of regrets around not going the VC route? And can you talk a little bit about what you feel you've missed not going there? And what was the trade-off around staying bootstrapped and building it on your own? Give me a sense of how you've kind of navigated that world. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's an interesting question. So, so in honesty, and so I don't know the timing of those two posts, but I was certainly wasn't in response to to those guys. Like, right, right, no, like no, no. Was, I, I, was, uh, I, that was on. No, that was on me. It was at the same okay, time. Okay. I believe. No, I just wanted to make sure that I'm not horribly insulting uh, someone else who who put out a post. Um, I think I used to worry more about not being VC backed early on. So super early on, it scared me a lot. Because, Why? Uh, what, what, what do you get out of going the VC route? Yeah, so so for one thing, it's uh, like kind of the way nobody gets fired by buying IBM. It's the default choice. Like like you've right. got a bit of an idea. You've maybe got a uh, POC 
you get VC backed, you follow a game plan that everyone knows. And and it's uh, there's very little doubt on it. And and my thoughts on it uh, evolved over time. But but certainly what was interesting for us is we didn't raise. And uh, so, so we built Canary, we sold it to a few customers, and then we sold it to some really nice customers. And, and when we, for example, sold to a few customers, I mailed uh, a few of the tech press. And, and some of the reporters are reporters who in my previous life covered research that we did. And I said, right. hey, tiny South African company doing something that's real, got real customers. And nobody covered us. Like, like nobody covered that stuff at all. And I thought I was doing it right. Like, I wasn't uh, being stupid about it. I kind of pitched a reasonable angle that said, millions are being spent, like, tiny South African companies doing something cool. Crickets. Like, literally nobody covered us. And I buy that. Like, nobody's there to do your PR. Um, but a few months later, a company came out of Y Combinator, backed by Y Combinator, uh, playing in the deception space. And they were covered by everyone. Like, here's this. And so I mailed some of those reporters saying, hey, listen, I don't want to be an ass. I just want to know for next time. Like, why'd you cover them and not us? Right. And, and at it's that the same point, story, because, right? Uh, same exact those, story. Ex exact same story, like same thing. And those reporters came back saying, hey, listen, like one of them was super blunt. Like, who invests in you? And I was like, look, we're not, nobody invests in us, but here's these unicorns that are using us and pay us. And the reporter basically said, listen, it's our job is tough. Like those guys have a strong signal because they're backed by Y Combinator. Uh, sorry. And and literally at that point, I was super hurt. And and I'll tell you one other thing. But it's thing an eye-opening uh, experience about the, the, the way it just, how the system works. It, it ties yeah, back it, to your VB talk. I mean, if folks want to want to get a sense of how this ecosystem works, you can go on YouTube and check out a virus bulletin keynote done by Haroon um, and Adrian Sanabria on this very issue around like how the game works. This whole game. Of, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's it's it, so there's very much a game, and, and I'll tell you two intangible things of VC backing. Well, I can I can think of a couple that that people don't talk about, but for example, I remember. Super early on. So Zane Lackey was at Signal Sciences almost the same time that I, and Zane's a super good friend of mine. Like, like we've crossed paths. Yeah, he's many now times a full-time VC actually. It's interesting. Yeah. He's now at A16Z, which uh, yeah, would be interesting to chat to. But, but Zane was doing Signal Sciences. I had just started Thinkst and both of us flew home from speaking at Vegas. And I remember seeing him on the plane and he went to the front of the plane with his VC backed flight. And I went to the back of the plane because I was paying for it myself. And it's a super stupid thing because you think it's small, but both of us are pretty late in our careers. Both of us have now started a company and that's real. Like right. your, there's your a certain in, in, in fact, inherent advantage that he automatically has. Exactly. And, and, and that stuff's tough. And what, uh, I'll talk about uh, a negative and a positive. One of the things that push you towards VC funding in a really big way. And I gave a small talk on this at RSA uh, at one of the sideshows a few years back. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of stuff tied to founder ego. And, and I don't mean it terribly. I mean, there's lots of stuff that just naturally nourishes your ego if you go the VC route. And, and the way everyone talks about it, especially VCs, but lots of the world, that they basically say, uh, look, 
you maybe you want to do a VC backed company or maybe you want a little mom and pop uh, shop, like maybe you want a lifestyle business. And inherently, especially to people who, who want to build tech businesses, they kind of saying you're not ambitious enough. Like either you want to do it our way, in which case you are a real founder and you're ambitious or you've got this piddling little uh, ambition. And that's right. not true. Like I, I think like I want to build a great company that lasts forever. I just don't think those two things are related. I think whether you VC backed and whether you want to build it, but, but everyone talks about it that way that says you want to build a VC backed company or you want a lifestyle business. And, and so I think that's one of the ways that ego pushes people into that path. But, but I'll tell you in real terms, and, and not everyone will, uh, will feel this super early on. One thing that I have seen that VCs give you that uh, you don't easily get another way. And that's, it, it's credibility, but also credibility to yourself. Like, like this sounds really stupid. And, and people think it's like, oh, now you'll get tons of customers because you're backed by big name VC. In our experience, that's not quite true. So, so again, to set the stage, like there were about six deception companies that were VC backed that raised like 60 million, now like 70 million. We raised nothing. We've got more customers than all of them put together. Like that stuff didn't make a difference at all. If VCs could bring you great engineers, they would have out-engineered us. If VCs could bring you great customers, they would have out-customered us. Like, we built one at a time and made customers happy and that worked. But one well, how of the are you interesting not, how things are you, is... How, one second, how are you not so sure that you're, you haven't left double this on the table because there's some value to what they could have brought? Oh, oh no, no, no. We very specifically leave lots on the table. And, and we can talk about that uh, completely. And, and I think one of the advantages you have is being able to leave stuff on the table happily. Uh, happily I, I right. think the the urge to optimize everything and grab every buck on the table leads to a whole bunch of dark patterns. Um, and, and one of the big dark patterns is that it forces people to put out stuff that's half-baked. Um, we've put out Canary tokens for five years now, literally millions of users, and we've never charged for it. Because I think there's one little bit that isn't right enough for charging. Right. And we're under no pressure for it. Like, like Canary right. pays that's out the other thing. That's, that's the thing that isn't it's, spoken about is the, is the pressure that the VC brings to get to IPO, to get to an exit, to get to your, your next sure. funding round so that they can possibly cash out. It becomes that game, right? Ab absolutely. Like, like, and, and every VC will tell you early on, like, this is what you're signing up for except everyone thinks that it's it's going to be different and you can play it differently. Um, but the thing that I'll say that, that VC backing gives you, that's not to be uh, underestimated. Like almost even till today, if somebody asks me my position at Thinkst, I say I'm the founder of Thinkst. I still cringe a little when people say uh, he's the CEO of Thinkst or, or something like that. And... Like you start a company with like three of your friends or three people you know, and then you get bigger. You you don't easily cross into, hey, I'm legit. Like, like we've got thousands of customers. Like 
this is legit, right. like actually and what that hurts your, business. You know, and that hurts your company's perception as well, your company's public perception. Because sure. when you wrote that 11 million in ARR post, it blew my mind. I, I got to be honest with you. And, and you and I have had sure. this conversation before, and you kept telling me, sure. Ryan, we're a big, huge company. We're a big, huge, successful company. But there was always this perception thing caused by the bootstrapping and your own kind of disdain for playing the game <laughs> that gives you, no, I, I, on, a ne- on the negative side, gives you this, you, you, it feels like a, a, a few guys in South Africa in, a, in, 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 an, in an office somewhere, right? And I, how, I, how do you balance that or do you I don't totally, care? No, no, I, I totally buy it. And, and to, to the original point, you can have three people working with you and a cat, but you have A16Z backing and Ben Horowitz says, this is a cool company. And suddenly right. you are CEO of a legit company and you right. can have 15 million in ARR and 30 people and it just doesn't feel the same. So, so VCs definitely give you that gravitas. Right. And you either get to use it or you don't. And, and again, it's kind of that vanity stuff. Um, to honestly answer your question for where you draw that line, um, for us, in honesty, it in part is why you even saw that blog post. Because that sort of thing at some point signals, hey, actually, we're doing pretty okay. Like, like we can't talk about all our customers, but actually we legit. And, and in part, uh, that sort of stuff plays to that. I, I do feel strongly that that some of the things people use as signals are stupid. So so like the obvious one that we spoke about is fake awards. But but in the same way, like, like people who use funding rounds as proxies for success, like what you just signed up for yeah. debt, like you just gave away part of your company, like, like that doesn't mean anything. Um, and, and that's largely used as proxies for, for having made it. And I think that stuff is stupid. Um, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of uh, <laughs> startup theater that, that goes on um, that's unnecessary. And, I'm, and I'm, I'm glad that we've had some measure of success so that we get to say, hey, you can do it another way. Like, like it doesn't have to be that way. Um, you can do it right and still win. Um, yeah, I'm hopeful. What would you say was the, when you talk about doing it another way, what would, what would you say was the, the biggest challenge of grinding through this bootstrapping? Is it the, you know, the ability to hire at scale? And, and I think that's just as to, to linger on the topic of folks who, who go the VC route versus bootstrapping. It's the ability to scale and scale fast is, you know, becomes part of the thing. Yeah. And it depends on where your business is and who your competitors is, how many other funded startups. You guys are in a, a little bit of a more unique space. Yeah. What was what would you say was some of the biggest challenges grinding through that in, in not even the early days, but still? Yeah, it's a good question. So so if you say hiring, like like I recently tweeted a very tight tweet uh, that, that kind of ties into this, because I was talking about the fact that, look, our company people wise is still surprisingly small, like like considering like we've blown past that 11 million era like that was that was last year and, That's last and we now considerably <laughs> better yeah we've still just 30 people right like like when we had like 10 million in arr we were much less like more than half our company we hired during covid so but 
But in part, one of the things that we askew is the thought that you've got to grow by adding lots and lots of people. And, and like we don't deliberately try to stay small, but we don't buy the idea of like, well, let's get nine people to have a baby in one month. Like, like I haven't seen that, uh, seen that work. And, and there's quite a few things in the standard VC playbook, which like if you buy the phrase says you find your model, you've got a flame going and then you take VC money as jet fuel, like to, to make it take right. off. And in truth, I've never seen that. Even with like good companies, like every stage is hard, right? Like, like you want to find sales leaders, it's tough. Like you want to find good engineers, it's tough. And, and one of the myths is that if you VC backed, you'll suddenly get like they'll give you access to great engineers or great people. And, and all of them introduce themselves to you as, well, we've got headhunters and we'll. And let me tell you, if you've got nine portfolio companies, who are you going to give those engineers to? Yeah. Like. Like yeah. that thing's just not going to work. Everyone's hunting for great people. But that's not what I'm talking about, though. I'm not talking about the network effect of helping to find people. I'm talking about big cash to go attract, you know, the types of engineers and the types of salespeople. Yeah. Let me tell you, I, I deal with a lot of startups, a lot of early stage right. startups. There's a lot of folks really struggling with the wrong people in marketing, the wrong people in engineering, the wrong people in product management. And that's a, right. that's a lot of that is a result of just not having the kind of capital to go out and hire the right set of people. So there's a real there's a real value to actually having that VC cash on hand. So so I'd I'd like to like a I'd like to challenge that to yes, see go. if like I believe they're struggling with the wrong people. I don't know that it's money bound. Good people are just hard to find. So we and have we definitely have this talent shortage for sure. I mean, for sure. cybersecurity but skills shortage is a real thing. I don't think money is the constraining factor um, because even companies with lots of money can't hire the right people. And, and so I think it's an easy crutch to think that it's money. And when you have money, you can hire faster. So maybe you put six people on it and, and you figure out two years later that you're working on the wrong message. But, right. but to that end, I think if you keep that stuff small and do that stuff right, and, and I don't mean small small goals or small achievements. I mean, you you do it like you do anything else. You try, you iterate, you get good people. Look, I, I can talk from, from personal experience. The, the one thing that you say is true is early on, we couldn't hire and pay huge money. So early on, the people that you're hiring come on for the mission, come on because they want to do this awesome thing and you've got an opportunity to. That's almost and impossible. Grow, that's almost imp but that's almost impossible to replicate today with guys who want to take this plunge and not worry about money. And, 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 and I mean, you guys were, you like I say, you're in a unique place in that you, you the founding of your company was not yeah. necessarily the traditional way. Yeah, so so I think we definitely had some advantages, right? And some of those advantages, two big advantages that I can't get away from is I made uh, some money selling SensePost, so right. so I could pay for stuff, and we had a pretty good reputation going in. So so right, like right, off right. the bat, we could build a thing and say, hey, try it, and some people would try it, and then we just have to not suck. Um. But like, I think if you're going to make a company from nothing 
and win, like you've got 10 years at least of those sorts of challenges. Like, like, and, and I think VC money solves some of them while introducing other problems. Right, right, right. And I think all of them are just problems that need solving. So, so I'll give you a very, uh, a very tangible example. We still do like not even 90%, like, like probably 98.9% of our business is absolutely incoming. We don't go out at all. People no mail lead in, generation, no traditional. Why, no, which is why to date we've had one salesperson who was my head of pen testing at my previous company. So not a salesperson at all. The mail comes right, but in. I, but he let does me, let me, a demo let for me them. pause here for a second. That makes that. Sure. Let me let me just push back again and say that makes you a terrible businessman. Why not hire four other salespeople if this thing is scaling at this speed? Why not hire four additional salespeople and 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 make this thing it's, pop? It's a super good question. So so what we've done is we've tried at different stages, and and if I'm honest, we've tried at incremental levels as our money grew, like like to the point where we go okay. We'll pay X for it. Okay, now we're paying way more than everyone else in the org. Okay, now we're paying 10x what I earn. Like now we're paying right. full on, you work for Google, SaaS, VP of sales guy. And and you bump into different things, right? Like, like one of the things, and, and one of the things we're currently wrestling with, like let's say you get a really top flight SaaS salesperson. They know the SaaS playbook. And they call... LinkedIn's head of security and say they want to sell to them. Like Jeff is not interested in talking to a SaaS salesman who could be selling Gmail, could be selling Zapier, but today is selling Thinkst Canary. Like right. Jeff's smarter than that. He wants a reasonable a re reasonable discussion and, and that's how that sale happens. And you can certainly build an army of traditional sales method, phone callers, go push this thing out. And again, I think you bump into this thing that says, maybe that's not the only way to do this. Like, like uh, I'll tell you for us, maybe what works better is for us to ramp up the stuff that gets us those inbounds. So instead of investing in an army of salespeople, maybe we invest in a researcher like Jacob Torrey from DAPA and put him in things labs and put out thingscapes because then people see that we're saying reasonable stuff and they look at our site. And and uh, there's a very stupid tangent to this uh, that I'll throw in, which is like when when we started selling Canary, like, like our time to value is super short, right? We give you a demo, you try it, you buy it immediately. And, and most people for sales products have this long sales pitch long sales cycle, like ours is super quick. And and everyone will tell you, yes, but you can't do that with this other product. Yes, but you can't do that with whatever. And of the six other people who were doing deception, none of them did it. And, right. and I'm not saying, I'm not using it to say we're clever. I'm using it to say it could have been done. The other people just didn't find it yet. And, right. and if you tell me that sales can't be done a certain way, it's just because people haven't found that yet.
And the VC at your back forces you not to because there's a perfectly viable other path, which is room full of salespeople pounding the street, doing the phone calls, sending the spam. And and there's a there's a few interesting things that, that come in here. And and we were talking about this recently at the company, at our company, years ago at my previous company at SensePost, we had this blog post, which we still use, which is which talks about the, the people at your company and the t-shirt test which is when you're standing next to this person at a company and he's wearing your company t-shirt or she's wearing your company t-shirt, how do you feel about that? And and so recently we had this question that said, hey, listen, like if we were to get this army of phone callers, like do we treat them as second-class citizens in the company? Like do you pull a Google trick and give them a different color badge? Or do you stand proudly next to them at a conference or does that person not go to conferences? Like, and, and for all of these things, I think, again, there's viable alternate approaches and some of them are specifically better for our ecosystem. Like, like make the money and then hire really good ex like people who are technical, really good consultants right. and use them to help sell your product. Because when they talk to the CISO, they talk to the company, they're having meaningful conversations and maybe they won't sell your product. Like maybe right. your product's not right for that customer. But like, it's it's just a lot of money spent a different way. So you can spend right. all that money on the traditional salespeople and their BMWs and their fancy watches, or you can spend it on top flight consultants who know the game and want to give good advice and if things have been chosen well, then the good advice will include buying more of your product. And if it right. doesn't, you should probably fix your product. Like, right, like, right. like there's a positive loop to doing it right that seems to be ignored in the rush to doing it now. And right, right. Uh, yeah, I think, I think so a long time ago, someone said, like, like one of the VCs, interestingly enough, was talking about like why you should try to build a big, meaningful company. And, and he said, if you build a small company or you build a big company, they're both hard. You might as well build a big one. And right. increasingly, I kind of feel like building a company without the suckiness, like building it right, is hard. Like none of it's easy, but the other stuff's also hard. So you might as well try right. to build it right. And, and so far, yeah, so far it's, it's been working for us. And it's worked for you guys. And, and you talked a little bit about Jeff on the LinkedIn example of not really, uh, uh, the, the, the sales, the traditional sales approach, not really resonating with him. You guys have a really, really interesting history in that you leaned into, uh, embedding yourself deep into the industry, the birth of the industry in the early days, coming out of a hacker culture. A lot of that might be your own intellectual curiosity, but that did help the credibility sure. of the brand when you launch. Like, I mean, sure. uh, uh, I, entrepreneurs dream of having the things cachet yeah, within I, the I, industry. Can you, t two things, two things. Wait, let me ask the question. Sure. Two <laughs> things. Was that a deliberate strategy or was that just part of your own personality and your own love of going to security conferences and nerding out at security conferences? And can you talk a little bit about how that investment 
help drive this success that you're seeing now and help some of your other peers understand the importance of, of, of investing in community and investing in these, embedding themselves in these places in vendor neutral, non-salesy, yeah. non-BS ways. Yeah, um, so for sure, it's, it helped us and, and it still helps us. Um, but, so it was totally non-intentional, right? Like, like we started off as uh, Hacksaws and SensePost was a company of like a small pen test company at a time when we were just figuring stuff out. And but even in SensePost part, invested in sending you guys to Black Hat and sending you guys out to sure, showcase the work that you were doing there, right? That was a deliberate strategy as well. It, it, it was an interesting mix, right? Like like early on for SensePost, like SensePost year two, we discovered Black Hat. I mean, we knew about Black Hat, but uh, Roloff and I got a talk accepted at a mini Black Hat, so Black Hat New Orleans. And right. we landed there and and like more than anyone else, I was super starstruck. Like, like I can't, like I'm a fanboy. I still of, am sometimes. Uh, quality work in general. And like, you see David Litchfield, uh, you see the Foundstone crew, you see Samuel, you see Halva. Like, literally, I was a fanboy. Um, but one of the things that also happens is, like, you look around and you go, hey, listen, like, like we're not that different to these dudes. Like, like we can do this stuff also. And, and so Black Hat changed our life because, like... There was a certain of, validation for your, for your belonging, right? Yeah. It, yeah, for sure. There was validation, but also in a really big way, it shifted for us as six South Africans. We went back to South Africa and didn't see the other South Africans as the team we were playing against. Like, right. like we wanted to release as often as Dave Itell did, or we wanted to, like, like I wanted Helva to think I was cool. And, and so that changed us to say like, hey, we should present at every black hat. And and like from 2002 to like 2010, we presented at every black hat. And, and the company couldn't afford to send us, right? Because we were six monkeys uh, doing pen testing work. So so we had to do a talk that got accepted. Right, and so, so there were like creative ways to make sure you got around, yourself there, right? Exactly. So, so that's the push. And we sold it to the company as, listen, this is good for us. Like we'll get better gigs. And, and one of the things that I always say that we were super, super lucky for, and until today I'm super grateful for, is like, like we did, we focused on doing like traditionally what you'd call elite work, like, like it's conference worthy. And the market rewarded us for it. Like, like lots right. of people do really lead work and get kicked in the teeth. And we did lead work and, and the luck that we had, like it was all hard, but some people do hard work and get kicked in the teeth and right. they learn, just keep your head down. And we did lead work and the market rewarded us. And, right. and so you see what comes out of it is the confidence that a Ruloff has that says, well, I can build a Paterva and the market will reward me. And I go, I can build a Thinkst. And as long as I'm lead and I'm honest, the market will reward me. And and so... And it's proven so. Yeah, we and has been proven out with both you and Roloff and some of the other examples that there is in the industry of I, guys who decided to just bootstrap it and do it the right way and get this kind of legit credibility in those circles. The market rewarded you. 
it, yeah, so so for sure it's worked that way, but I'm sure there are people who've been kicked in the teeth also. Like right. like I don't think that it's a magic uh, ticket. And and so anyway, we did that stuff. And and at the time, like you said earlier, there's the combination of it was a dream. Like you show up and you do black hat. Like so, even just on its own, that was awesome. But it allowed us to build a name, build credibility. We built a good business uh, in the form of Sense Post, and like I said before, it gives you the confidence to say, "Well, okay, I did that. I want to build a product business. Uh, let's go build a product business." Right. Um, I didn't. Uh, so none of it was. Well, I'll build this audience now, and someday it will help me when I want to do a product business. Yeah. But certainly along the way, you get more confidence that. If I do this right, like I can speak truth to power and it'll never cut me off at the knees. Like, like I'll, we'll find an audience if we, if we honest about the stuff and intellectually rigorous about the stuff. And, and yeah. No, sorry. You mentioned uh, David Litchfield and Hal Warren, some of that, uh, the era of security researchers. I want to shift gears a little bit because what we're starting to see is that that generation of hacksaws security researchers came up, are now developing into security leaders and landing into CISO roles. There's Nico right. Weisman, Dino Daisovi. Right. I mean, like we, can, we, can reach, we can go through a list. These guys are starting to become the security leaders for a lot of big organizations. Is that, uh, not necessarily it's a, uh, it, it, whether it's a good thing, but are you starting to see that shift making things better and... Yeah. Help me understand how you're thinking yeah. when when I, you're when you're navigating the security leadership world. How how does that hackers coming out of that background fitting? Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, yeah, I I, I get the question. And and yes, uh, you you starting to see more of it, and I think it's great. Like like you you often get questions. So so it, there's an interesting thing where. Like people used to sometimes look down on security researchers as junk hacking or stunt hacking and that sort of stuff. But even in the stunt hacking crowd, there are, or, or even junk hacking crowd, there are names that were clearly consistently ahead of their time. And, and I don't just mean because they were able to do a type of exploit well. These are people who understood the threat landscape before threat landscape was a heavily abused word. And every time there was a new paradigm, they hopped across. And and along the way, they may have been a junk talk or two, but it's it's people who dedicated to the craft. And, right. and look, I think like an investment in that type of uh, skill, it's super valuable. Like, like I think, I, I, I think at this point for some of those people, like, like people like Katie, people like Dino, uh, people like Litchfield, they've invested so much for so long that it's near insurmountable. Like, like if someone was looking at them and wanting to catch up, like, like you can't. There's just wealths yeah. of information in there. There's intuition that institutional memory, right? That yeah, kind of institutional memory that can't you can't have it. You have to have tons of it. There. And and it's not to say that everyone there had it. Like like there are some people who have don't have 20 years experience, they have one year experience repeated 20 times. 
Um, but but you see the people where that's different. And and like you mentioned Dino and you mentioned Nico, and both of them are amazing examples. Like like Dino's been, like he's transformed himself so many times over his career. Like like originally he was the Spark hacker guy, and then he was the Mac hacker guy, and then the yeah, iOS hacker to own guy. guy. Yeah. And and it, at around the time that that he moved. Uh, into the payment card stuff. He's been building and building and building. Like he, he leads that security team and they've been doing awesome stuff. And the stuff has positive benefits for everyone because the stuff that they build drips down. And and you right. even see the young hacksaws who worked with him branching out. Um, and so so I think that stuff's great. And I think it's a great uh, positive. It's, it's interesting because it's an interesting argument away. When we were... When we were, I say, growing up, but but like as we were coming up, there was this kind of false dichotomy where people would say, "Well, you are a tech monkey, but I understand risk and I understand the business," and and of course, like like in business, guys like Paul Graham, when they did Y Combinator, used to talk about how there was a false dichotomy between real business leaders and founders, and how that changed as the right founders grew up. Like there's a time where the founder starts the business and then he gets replaced by professional management. And today right, right. everyone knows that like if you want to pull off Facebook scale stuff, you need Zuck still there or Airbnb founders still there. And you're right. starting to see the same stuff with these hacksaws who grow up. Like you can't easily replace them because actually that technical knowledge merged with the business knowledge and and in some ways one of like with my own bias like one of those two things are easier to learn for a really smart person like right. like you take a dino and you put him in the payments card world he'll learn the payments card figure world. It out. and yeah. you take a nico and you put him in whatever he's doing for Lyft, he's like running, whether it's yeah, autonomous exactly. systems or scaling, yeah, he, he's going to figure that stuff out and he's going to bring all of his other stuff to bear. So so I think it's hugely valuable for the industry. But but the thing that's still going to keep security people employed is just we create more code than ever before. We're joining right. together more systems than ever before. And you've only got limited numbers of these awesome people. On the Dino and Nico point, I want to linger on a, a little bit of a controversial sure. topic is, and it's starting to bubble <laughs> up, is the CISO should actually be technical. And we can define technical <laughs> in different ways. We can define technical in yes. very different ways. But there's an argument that a, a good mature CISO for a, 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 a mature security program needs to be technical. And I, and I know Dino and, 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 and that, that, uh, that era of, of security research has come to mind here. Do you have a yep. thought at all in terms of the, the security leaders you work with and so on around this somewhat yeah. controversial topic? Because there's some gatekeeping there as well. There's some other issues to take in, into consideration. Yeah. But, but I do feel there's a big difference between a security program run by a Dino and a security program run by an XIT guy who... Yeah. I don't know. I'm trying to I'm trying to couch it as carefully as possible. No, it, it, yeah. <laughs> it's it's an interesting question. And and like I think like any good question the Don't answers get into are trouble, mixed. Please. 
No, no. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a sort of thing that does get you into trouble. I'll tell you why it's uh, why my take on it is mixed. Like like I quoted Jeff early on, and Jeff doesn't. And that's Jeff Belknap be from LinkedIn. Jeff Belknap, LinkedIn. Right? Yeah. So X X Palantir X Slack uh, now LinkedIn, mm-hmm. and Jeff's an example of a great CISO. Like like gets it. And, and one of the things that I've always seen is Jeff, Jeff manages to find amazing technical arms. So, so like at Slack, he had Ryan Huber. Ryan Huber's gone on to create Nebula and his own technical company. And it takes skill to hire and run a Ryan Huber because a Ryan needs some cover and he needs a whole bunch of things. And it but takes is it technical breath. skill that is needed? No, no, that's why I say Jeff's largely an exception for me because, well, not an exception. I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you what I actually think. It is for a long time, the default narrative was you don't need to be technical. You need this overall view. And I think the world took that too far. And, and one of the big problems in InfoSec is that the world is such a big place that we talk about things as if like you can generalize but like what we're talking about for the top five unicorns is not the same as for the other basquillion companies and so if you say that CISOs don't have to be technical it becomes an excuse for bunches and bunches of people who've got absolutely no technical understanding to say well you don't have to be technical you just have to understand blah 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 and at the same time, for years, going to Black Hat, we used to cry at the number of people who would attend Black Hat talks as if it was a spectator sport, just waiting to see a shell on screen so that they could go drinking afterwards and talk about how Kaminsky owned something. And, and right. the, reason, the reason I bring it up is because if you were comparing someone who understood the business first one of those people yes, you're probably better off with someone who knows the business. But if you're comparing someone who knows the business with someone like Dino, who's just a savant problem solver, and his problems for the last 20 years happen to be InfoSec, then take Dino, because whatever your problems are, he's going to find a way to solve it. And, and so in the end, I think it's a... What a non-answer... It is a non-answer because it is a non-answer because there's there's some security programs is not necessarily a technical thing. There's privacy, there's GAR, there's like GRC, there's all kinds of different components that doesn't necessarily come from a Hacksaw background or come to a Hacksaw background. And there's the the other side of the argument is that the the emphasis on technical, technical, technical. It yeah. keeps and blocks other folks, uh, other 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 disciplines that really lend itself to, and that's why we have a, te- a, a, a cybersecurity skills shortage because it's, we're we're reaching for these 10x engineers when they don't exist or they're unicorns, and yeah. we're, we're dismissing these other things. Yeah, so so I think you you answered one thing, and for me you brought up uh, or you kicked up another uh, can of worms, which is. I think you're right. Like, like, so there's lots of positions and not all of them are... In fact, there was an argument on Twitter between uh, Halva and uh, his ex-boss at Google. 
Yes, and, I remember I saw that. It, it was it was it was it was pretty intense argument around it, and 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 that's why I I, I I cautioned you around like be careful around uh, how sure, you're sure. answering this because it's very it's a very um it's a very emotional topic for folks yeah. it, no, because it totally it's a real is, real issue and it's very easy to make a mistake on either side. Yeah, it it totally is, and and people who've Heather Atkins was yeah, because Heather Atkins yes, and and Heather's brilliant, right? Like Heather's one of the OGs uh, for Aurora, for the Aurora attack, and and part it's interesting because in that instance, Halvar was overloading the term technical, and and right, that's so why I talk, I started this by saying we can we can nitpick yeah. on the definition, but you know what I meant? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know totally, and and that's why I say like like when I say there's a non-answer. In a very stupid way, it goes back to our topic of hiring at startups and and right. uh, what I said, uh, because like when we're looking to hire like salespeople now, uh, like you take a, a very real example, we have someone who calls, like like let's say we've got a handful of uh, uh, MSSPs who deploy Canaries at all their customers, right? And and we now say, okay, look. This handful of MSSPs love us. They've caught all these customers with us. We've never sold to others. Like, go take us to the other top 50 right. MSSPs. Like, it's a no-brainer. Like, these use us. They like us. It's proven. Take us to the others. You take a salesperson who's got no solid industry experience. He can't tell the difference between the Deloitte MSSP and Red Canary as an MSSP. And so they're going to make a bad choice. Like, like yes, they're in sales, but they actually don't know the industry. And so in a way, they lose leverage. Like, they're going to spend more time on it. They're going to chase the wrong things. They're going to do the wrong things. And and the, the term generally in, when you're hiring is, or the phrase is smart and get stuff done. And I think that's what you're looking for. Like if you look at a, a Heather Atkins, like the definition of smart and get stuff done. And if you take a person like that, or if, even if you take a Jeff, like look, smart and get stuff done. And so for Jeff, the most brilliant technical people are good tools that he can use to get stuff done. And the reason I give Dino props is because Dino is smart and get stuff done. And Dino, when he's playing in a company, has to find a manager who listened to him, who right. he can show value to, and the manager will back his play. And if you are Jeff, you're going to find your Ryan, and right, you've got right. to back. And, and so that's why... It's still a very almost, long non-answer, though. It's still it, it, a very it, long non-answer. It's, it, it's, it's an it depends, but I, I feel it, like... It's absolutely an it depends, and it's absolutely a thing, again, to go full circle. When I said you're building a company, you're going to bump into those challenges. Like, like you're going to bump into life threat, like, like existential challenges, and you make them happen or you don't. And right. you're going to be a great player that, that makes a meaningful difference. You're going to have to make stuff happen. Like, like I think... I think beyond that, like where the gate, you'll never see any of these top players gatekeeping. Like, like you won't see them doing that. Like you'll see the gatekeeping coming with people snapping at the bottom and, and almost by 
like it almost defines itself. And and so mainly like my advice for kids on that stuff is go earn your way to the top. Like like go become a Jeff or go become a Dino and don't spend your time with that. And there'll be challenges. It, sorry, to, to go full circle again, like, because someone pointed out to me, Vincenzo Yotso pointed out to me at some point, he said, hey, listen, like, you talk about how you didn't need VCs, but, like, VCs give you credibility, and Vincenzo's my friend, he said, like, look, VCs give you credibility, and you had that credibility because of your previous uh, life. Right, right. What about a company that doesn't? And, and for one part, he's right, but for the other part, I didn't have other stuff. And I had to find out how to make do with the other stuff. And right. if someone to doesn't have this guy. stuff, right. yeah, exactly. And and like just off the top of my head, like if you've got no credibility, but you think you've got a great product, call up Doug Song and call up Ivan and call up you and call up HD Moore and say, give me 10 minutes. I want to show you my product. And right. all of you would give him 10 minutes. And when that product looks good, you're going to say it's good and you've now and, and i'm not saying any of it is easy and i'm not trivializing any of it I'm, I'm mainly saying yeah like like you like you got to plug at it like that stuff's yeah. going to be hard um plug at it you got time for one more question i got another question on yeah, my list sure that thing. i want to touch on with you because and it, it takes back to the original uh, uh getting yep. into uh, uh your your fascination with this hacker world and the security conferences you did a project on memory corruption vulnerabilities and the history of memory corruption vulnerabilities <laughs> i believe dating back to the 1990s the earlier the earliest days of the you know research papers Yep. I just, prior to this conversation, wrote a small story on Apple iOS 14.5 patch came out today with uh, right. 29, I think 39 documented CVEs, 99% are, are memory corruption, memory safety issues. So we, we're, we're decades into this class of vulnerabilities. We've, we've invested millions, perhaps billions on all kinds of technologies and uh, mitigations and sandboxes and safe way thing. When you look back now at what has evolved since you started tracking this, because I, I, one of my favorite pieces of work is that work, that uh, history, Thanks. memory, memory safety issues. Is this something you thought that would have been solved by now? <laughs> is this where, uh, because the reality is you look at the, the Maddie Stone Google O'Day spreadsheet, it's all memory yep. safety issues. Apple is dumping memory safety issues everywhere. I mean, it's just continues to be a big, massive uh, uh, headache. Yep. In truth, uh, I thought most security issues would be solved uh, by now. Like, like when we were pen testing, I thought lots of stuff but would not, keep getting better. Oh, wait, it's not only has it not been solved, but everything is owned. Like everywhere is owned. <laughs> we have a ransomware epidemic. We have a breach epidemic. We have ICS and, and critical infrastructure things royally owned everywhere. So not only yeah. has it not been solved, but the reality is we live in a assumed breach world. Like Microsoft's Bible documents assumed breach as the model. Uh, so look, I'm I'm an assume breach fan. <laughs> like that's that's our thing. Like assume you breached and and detect badness. Um, but no, I I'm I I think we've made uh, strides in lots of places. Where um, where I 
I think oh, oh where um yeah. so give me an example of, of of places where we've made so much strides that a company like Nvidia and Samsung is not royally owned by uh, by ransomware guys. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I challenge that <laughs> assumption that zero trust and all of our things have fixed anything. We haven't really. <laughs> no, no. So so I wouldn't I wouldn't place faith in in any of the super new things uh just yet. But but I think there have been considerable differences. I I think like like despite what we say Microsoft was getting owned by kids looking in their spare time in the 2000s. And and like do you think they've patched less vulnerabilities today than they patched in the 2000s? Do you think um, the criticality has reduced in any way? No, so I think that's the difference, right? I think uh we've increased the amount of code that we're putting out and we've increased the dependence on that code. And right. and so I think we we're doing things better but the world's using more and more of it. um as we go on and there's a very interesting thing if you're interested in this for some reason people in my generation loved hating on Marcus Ranum like like and and True. it's because Marcus I remember Ranum, this yeah 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 and and he used to say some stuff that stop was stop looking there. at bugs right wasn't that his uh, his thing was stop doing vulnerability research So so Renum said a bunch of things so that's one of the reasons why he got the most hate like like he yeah, gave that this was talk the one, yeah. called uh security researchers are cockroaches and he said that the industry needs to stop throwing out sugar for these cockroaches blah 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 but but he Pete said Lindstrom of... one of the analysts there was an analyst yeah. at IDC Pete Lindstrom also was on that and 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 we kind of as a, as as a community we kind of derided them and and like you yeah. like you mentioned yeah but but you must go back and look at Ranum's things because one of the things Ranum said super early on in, in fact he he gave two talks close to each other one was researchers are cockroaches and and his take on the researchers are cockroaches thing like he always had this very rough way of talking but but there were some kernels to what he was saying and and what he was saying there was you can't work a day job at a security company and publish zero day at night he said like like this stuff's wrong and and one of the things he said was he said listen like if we keep doing this we're going to start hurting the public and at some point the public's going to complain to the politicians and the rules are going to change for all of us and he may have been wrong by a little bit but i think uh that's what you start to see happening and the other thing he said back then he said listen we carrying around indefensible protocols written in badly written code he said let's throw the stuff out let's put pause on it and rewrite it safely and of course it seemed insane at and that time we're talking about the early 2000s right i mean he sure, you know, i think it was 2000s, 2001 yeah. no i think that was yeah, like yeah. like super early and and like in the end that's what that stuff's coming to now right like it's that's like that's what we're hearing now we need to we need to rewrite it's, stuff in memory safe languages right yeah and and in fact lots of his stuff yeah like i say it had kernels of truth and and even just saying this like i know people are going to throw their hands up at me because uh they could see no see no right in it but but he had some stuff um and i think so back to your original question look i think there are classes of bugs that we managed to get rid of um hopefully but but one of the things and uh, there there was this uh a really really great report that I've uh quoted a few times which means I should actually know it better um Richard Danzig uh wrote a report for the US government called uh, surviving on a diet of poisoned fruit and uh he was 
he's one of those crazy smart guys like he previously did nuclear non-proliferation stuff and now he was doing cyber stuff and uh Gary McGraw interviewed him and asked what was the hardest thing about cyber compared to nuclear and he said when he interviewed a string of people on a topic and then went back to verify his answers he'd often find that the world had changed so the answer that the person first gave no longer held true and that doesn't happen with nukes like like there's the truth and the truth was the truth and and in some ways we have to understand that that's the world like that's the cyber world we live in so so we say that ddos is a non-existent problem and it is and then it's not anymore and right, and we right. say that that x is not a problem and then the world changes and iot brings it all back and and to some extent i think you can stand there cursing at it or you can accept that that's this playing field and we have to find ways to win despite that being the playing field and and i think like if you honest about it like like with a nihilistic view like everything is owned with another view like it's a pretty amazing world like like i sit in south africa and i order I books and they show up and, i struggle and... with it i go to i go to my local walgreens and uh, to buy a coca cola i take yeah. my iphone and i just wirelessly swipe it near a thing and then there's encryption and magic that happens that moves money out of accounts and like this this we we've come on incredibly far away yeah, yeah. again the reality is though right the reality sure. is this every will... company is dealing with a breach yeah everything is royally owned these vendors are pumping out critical patches on a weekly daily <laughs> basis for 2022 there have been 11 documented in the wild zero days so, in this year alone we're in so, march like there's like what's so tell on? you something worse like like even though i did that uh that paper on on like the history of memory corruption like it, it, timing wise it's interesting but if you, if you take the 10 years prior to that right like rolf and i like sense post we broke into hundreds of companies like like we owned everything as pen testers right and we used like what would officially count as a memory corruption zero day once yeah and and so if you talk about owning companies and owning networks zero day are not even a good proxy for what's owned in the world like but that doesn't like the, that doesn't strengthen your argument though that makes your argument worse no, no, right no. Is, if you don't no, need zero absolutely. day and people will click on anything and 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 you don't even need zero no, day no. then uh, Absolutely. And look, one of the things is like all of these things are are variations of it depends. And and even that it still remains true. Like like you can break into tons of companies without uh without zero day. And, and back then we weren't even socially engineering people. Like back then we were talking about just breaking in with misconfigs. And you're talking and, about and, and you're talking about a networks. Correct. And you're talking about a company that is doing a pen test that is mature enough to spend to, for you guys to come break into things. Like the majority of companies is not, we're not even there yet. And sure. how much money has been spent on security? Well, like what is the TAM for cybersecurity uh, addressable it, yeah. market? You guys are doing no, it, you mentioned Yeah, I don't know the answer, but it the fact that all the crazy investments happen like that's why it's because the TAM is so incredibly huge. So so I think there's huge work to be done. 
But like I said, I think there have been advancements. I think I'm amazed. Like, like I know the iPhone hacks was, it hasn't for a while, but like Stefan Esser and guys would like scream at me anytime I gave uh, Apple props for the work that they've done. But they've done great work. Like, like the Google Chromebook is great work. The work that comes out of Square is amazing work. Um, some of the new frameworks, like people don't get SQL injected anymore. Like, like web apps are less likely to cross-site script anymore. So, so lots of those things disappear as classes. And and well, part we did, of the, but, but 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 adversaries don't need them or didn't need them or still don't need them. I mean, sure. your original point about we're just we're just generating more code and we can meaningfully secure. I think that's the that, that's the realistic it's not answer. I had a, like like that's not gonna change. Like because that stuff's driving forward, and that stuff like like early on someone said that that we'll be as insecure as we can be while continuing to function. Because like that's the pace that stuff will push forward at, and and to some extent like that's true. Like the stuff just pushes forward. I I think I think. But that's like, what's powering even... everything is. But that's what's powering everything that's wrong in security, right? All the VC crazy, all the the the, the lazy, and it's because of this, right? It's because the addressable market is so huge, and we just can't secure these these code bases properly, and everything is interconnected, and here we are. So I mean, I hear yeah, this so, sound like so a curmudgeon, I but I, it just like the reality no. of it feels so dispiriting, you know? Yeah, no, like like I had stages when I used to be uh, depressed at it all. But I'll, I'll tell you, like with the VC market, with the security product market, where I feel slightly different is like I wouldn't mind if huge VC money went into things that could work. I, I dislike the snake oil because I feel it ties up people's mental cycles, steals good people, steals good time. And like that personally annoys me. Like like seeing huge amounts of money being invested in fundamentally things that won't help at all, I find annoying. But but I think like money going into securing stuff, coming up with better ways to do stuff, I think that stuff is cool. I think people trying completely new ideas because maybe I think it's cool. I think I think we have made some strides. I think there's a lot of work to be done. I think there's lots of coolness to be done. Like like yeah. I've said at a few conferences that like when we got in, because we were young and stupid, like uh, in part, like there's a young thing of like wanting to make a name for yourself. Like if I was starting today in InfoSec, like you can make a name for yourself in defense. Like like there's problems waiting to be solved. True. There's a lot of issues. There's a lot of things to fix. A yeah. lot of things to Go, fix. You, like, like you can do great stuff there and, and it's waiting to be done. So so some of that stuff is cool and interesting. Um let me just put the bow on it. Let me put the sure. bow on the memory safety conversation. And you bring you brought up Ranum actually suggesting it a long time ago. The same things people are suggesting today. Where where do you see us ten years from now? Give me a look forward. If we're having this conversation ten years from now, and I say, Harun, remember your memory safety paper? Where are we? Do you think we're? Because some of it is unrewritable. I mean, a lot of it yeah. is unrewritable. But do you do you think that like a lot of the 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 everyday modern computing will move in that direction? Yeah, I think we'll be better off. Um, I, I think 
I think we've started in that direction where it's, look, if, and, and the cynical people will give an excuse for this. But, but again, if you remember 2002, everything was wormed every week. Like, like vulnerabilities true. were so bad, like, like things were... But everything you, is you, ransomed right now every week. What's the difference between ransomware yeah, and warm? Now, yeah, no, right? there's an interesting difference. <laughs> and, and the difference is almost exactly the two things that I spoke about. So the zero-day crowd was worms. I can break into a network without zero-day is ransomware. Because right. that's, I'll find another way. And the world has not focused on that like they focused on memory safety. And so memory safety has appreciated Some of it is our own fault, right? Our own security industry fault in, 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 in glamorizing. We must, only yeah, in glamorizing, we must focused, yeah. we glamorized, we sold the products on the one and not the other. But, but I can tell you realistically, you started in 2002, you could be writing an exploit in a week. I cannot write a modern iPhone exploit. It's like, true. It's true. It's, you go to Pwn to own, you know, used to pop the MacBook with one bug. You go to Pwn to own today, you need four, five, six chains put together. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, guess yeah. what? They're still doing it, right? I mean, that's so, the, the, sure. the outcome and the, and the final result is still the same. So it's kind of the same. It's, it's certainly an upping of the bar. Like, uh, it's certainly, a, and, and if you're nihilistic, you could say, but it's the same result, but it's not. Like, like you are vulnerable to two guys and a debugger and a weekend, and now right. you're vulnerable to a team of 30 who dedicated time to it. And, and you'll get the occasional flyer, but, but your ransomware point goes to the pen testing point, which says, you'll solved that one problem but I'm breaking into your network a hundred other ways and releasing ransomware. And ransomware is just the canary in that coal mine that says I can break in and this was the easiest way for me to monetize it. To monetize, the least right. imaginative way to monetize it. But what you take that as a proxy for is that network's ownable. And we haven't been focusing as an industry as much on all the ways your network can be owned. And do you think do you think uh, the yeah, do you think that do you think the dot gov portion drive around like really uh, uh, leaning in on zero trust and beyond corp and so on ch changes dynamics in any way? I don't. Do you think that filters like, down like, out to the federal government into hurt. the rest? I I think it can't hurt, but but I actually think there's a bigger problem there. Like like I think getting developers to fix the code is easier than getting organizations to figure out how to build resilient networks. Yeah. Because I think, I, I think you were dealing with a smaller group of people when you're looking at the, and, and it took us 20 years to get to this imperfect state on the easier of the two problems. Right, right. I think the other problem is gonna be bigger and take longer. So, so I think that will still be around for a while. Um, yeah. All right, I'm going to have to leave it there. Day. I still have maybe <laughs> 10 questions to get to, so you'll have to come back soon, Haroon. Thank you very much for sharing <laughs> your say, expertise and your time. Appreciate it as always, Anytime, my friend. Kusabi, it's been great. <laughs>